I'm Dr. Edward Mazur, Chairman of the City Club of Chicago. I want to welcome you to our special program today featuring the Commissioner of Public Health for the City of Chicago, Dr. Allison Arwady. The City Club was founded in 1903. We are the premier public affairs organization in the City of Chicago. We're delighted that you could join with us for our new virtual platform. This is a free program. Advanced registration is required, and any donations will be appreciated. At this time, Dr. Arwady will be introduced by the mayor of the city of Chicago, who's taken time from her busy schedule to introduce our speaker, Mayor Lightfoot. Hello, everyone. This is Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and it is my distinct honor to introduce today's speaker, Chicago Department of Public Health Commissioner, Dr. Allison Arwady. Public health commissioners normally aren't public-facing figures, but nothing about this moment is normal. Not only are we incredibly blessed to have a leader of Dr. Arwady's skill and vision during this unprecedented COVID-19 crisis, but she also happens to be a leader who has built her career around tackling the very challenges we face now. Prior to joining the Department of Public Health, Dr. Arwady spent time in the field fighting outbreaks overseas, such as Ebola in West Africa, MERS in Saudi Arabia, and HIV and tuberculosis in Botswana. You've heard me talk a lot about the importance of good governance during my time as mayor, and this is why. It's moments like this, when our government needs credibility and our leaders need to lead. That's exactly what Dr. Allison already has done. It's thanks to her leadership and guidance that our city has adopted our disciplined, data-driven approach to this disease. And the results speak for themselves. While other parts of the country are grappling with record surges, here in Chicago, our news case rates are at about a fifth of where they were during our peak back in May. Now, make no mistake, we still have a long way to go with this crisis, and a lot can change. But the fact of the matter is, when it comes to COVID-19, the city of Chicago is in a place other major cities simply aren't. And thanks to the incredible work of Dr. Arwady and her team, we have not only saved thousands of lives, but we've also been better able to manage the economic crisis stemming from this disease and lay the groundwork for a historic recovery that will follow. However, what COVID-19 has also done is bring to the forefront the glaring health and other inequalities that exist across our city, revealing the systemic discrimination, the outright institutional racism that has plagued our city for generations. With the rates of incidents and outright cases being weighted more heavily on the south and the west sides and among our most economically vulnerable communities. With many of these same communities suffering from an array of pre-existing health conditions that made them particularly vulnerable to this ruthless virus, including health care accessibility, life expectancy, joblessness, and hunger, to name just a few. In this crisis, we are seeing just how urgent these issues of equity and opportunity are in Chicago and how they are literally matters of life and death. 
What you'll be hearing today from Dr. Arwady is our path forward to bridge these gaps and how we plan on using this crisis as a -a once-in-a-generation opportunity that it is to take the needed action to make these issues a thing in the past once and for all. This is our moment to change the lives of our communities and literally extend the lives of our residents. And I could not be more proud to have a leader like Dr. Arwady at the helm as this transformative public health mission unfolds. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming the City of Chicago's Department of Public Health Commissioner, Dr. Allison Arwady. I am so grateful to find myself working with the team that I have at the Chicago Department of Public Health and working for a mayor who has been deeply engaged in every aspect of the response, but also prior to COVID had set a direction for this city that did not shy away from some of our biggest entrenched challenges, disinvestment, poverty, institutional racism. Because as you'll hear today, we are confronting two public health emergencies in Chicago. One, acute COVID-19, the other long-standing, chronic, but no less urgent, the entrenched poverty and systemic racism that have driven different health outcomes for white Chicagoans and Chicagoans of color, especially black residents, for generations. I've spent a lot of time studying outbreaks, and I know that outbreaks, epidemics, and pandemics put pressure on health departments, but they also put pressure on our society. They reveal the cracks. They lay bare the structural problems. They help us see what we value as a society. People are looking for someone to blame for COVID-19 and for any large outbreak that occurred in the past. Existing divisions, whether those are race or religion or roles or politics, often come to the front. We see tensions boil over. We see longstanding inequities become more obvious in the light. I don't think it's coincidence that we're seeing such vigor in the racial justice movement following the murder of George Floyd at the same time that we're responding to COVID-19. How we explain and respond to a viral pathogen is based in our culture, our practices, and what we value. But that also means that the opportunity for thinking beyond the immediate challenges of COVID to the social changes beyond this can be part of our efforts in controlling the disease. So let's pull up the slides. COVID has made us all interested in public health. I love that when I take questions from the public now, I get questions about flattening the curve, contact tracing, antibodies, percent positivity, epidemiology. These were not words that the general public knew just a few months ago. But we're also seeing how political and social and scientific factors are all intersecting, and we're learning about the difference between public health and health care. So here, public health broadly is about the health of populations and communities, while health care is more about the care of individual patients. Public health more fundamentally is about disease prevention and stopping the spread of disease, 
whereas healthcare more fundamentally is about disease treatment. Public health is about interventions that are focused on policies, on systems, on environmental changes, really with a goal toward social change. That's why public health tends to be embedded within government institutions. Healthcare is about interventions focused on medical care and really aiming at individual change. I have training in both of these fields. I love both of these fields, but I do my primary work in public health because I like thinking about these big pictures, uh, questions, and I encourage all of you to do that too. When public health is working well, you do not see us. You know when you go to the doctor. You know when you're getting health care. But you don't see the work that we're doing at the Chicago Department of Public Health to make sure our water is clean, our food supply chain and restaurants are not spreading disease, that we're keeping mosquitoes in control, that we're stopping the spread of more than 70 communicable diseases every day, and much more. But when there's an outbreak, everybody knows about public health. I do want to highlight, though, that public health works with healthcare, but also sits at the intersection of so many other factors. And when we're thinking health here, definitely part of this is about do people have access to health care? There are different estimates of this, but broadly people think that perhaps uh, the, uh, the factor that influence health, about 20% of that is probably what healthcare access looks like. About 30% is more related to health behaviors. Another 40% is in the socioeconomic factors that the mayor referenced right at the beginning. And that's where work like Invest Southwest or the anti-poverty agenda is so important. And about 10% is related to the physical environment. So let's start talking about COVID-19. I'm going to give you some behind the scenes information here, but we're also going to talk about how some of the lessons we've been learning from COVID have the uh, ability to carry over to the other things that we need to do on public health here in Chicago. So those of you who have been following know that I love to talk about data. I'm not going to be talking about the details of where we are here in Chicago, but it's been six months since the Chicago Department of Public Health was activated for COVID-19. Six months since the first patient with COVID-19 was diagnosed here in the Chicago area before we even knew it as COVID-19. And as of mid-July, our outbreak is broadly in good control. We are just over that 200 case per day mark, which means we're in the high incident state. And that's why we had to make some, uh, we pulled back a little bit on some of the reopening that we had had in place in a surgical way, hoping to get us back down under that 200 mark and keep our outbreak broadly in control. As the mayor said, where we look back just at the beginning of May, we were having more than a thousand cases per day. We were very concerned about overrunning our healthcare system to the point where I was making calls to get ventilators around the country, where we were building McCormick Place out as an alternate care facility and planning for the worst while hoping for the best. And that is the path that we need to continue on as we keep working on COVID-19. It is not going anywhere. We see it roaring back in states around the country. The reason we've gotten this far is because broadly, I think here in Chicago, we have seen this as one Chicago against the disease. We've broadly resisted the urge to politicize uh, basic 
decisions like wearing masks or keeping social distancing, washing hands, protecting vulnerable Chicagoans, all the things that we know work, even while we continue to learn about the virus. And so one of the first principles that we have been using and will continue to use for all public health work is to put data at the center of our work. Use data to identify the populations and communities of greatest need, agree on common benchmarks, build trust by being as transparent as we can be, and sharing that data with communities. For many months now, I have started every day with a phone call with the mayor and her team. We provide an update on our local data, our case counts, our death counts, our testing numbers, right down to the number of patients who are awaiting COVID tests on ventilators in Chicago hospitals. We look at data on hotspots, we look at data on age, and we talk a lot about race ethnicity. That is not by accident, and it has been the center of the work here from very early on. When we first shared the racial and ethnic disparities that we were seeing here in COVID here in Chicago, we also paired that with some action. The Racial Equity Rapid Response Team was launched, and that has been a group of very committed community members, providers, folks from the mayor's office, folks from all different parts of Chicago coming together to say, how do we talk seriously about the way COVID is affecting our communities of color? What do we have to do in practice? And let's get it done quickly. So this graph on the left here uh, does show the zip codes that have been most impacted by COVID-19. And broadly, this matches very closely what we see where uh, in blue here, the percent of residents uh, that neighborhoods that are predominantly black and then in green residents, uh, neighborhoods that are predominantly Latinx. And where we look at our case count at this point, we stand at nearly 58,000 cases. 15% of those cases in Chicago have been among white Chicagoans, 3% among Asian Chicagoans, 30% among black Chicagoans, and 47% among Latinx Chicagoans. Three and a half times times the case rate in Latinx as compared to white Chicagoans. And a lot of that has to do with essential work. It has to do with crowded housing. It has to do with a lot of underlying reasons why people in particular communities are impacted more. And when we look at deaths, among our more than 2,700 deaths, 4% have been in Asian Chicagoans, 19% in white Chicagoans, 33% in Latinx Chicagoans, and a full 48%, 43%, excuse me, in black Chicagoans. Black Chicagoans are dying from COVID at two and a half times the rate of white Chicagoans. So let's step back and see some about why that is. So first of all, we have to talk about the racial life expectancy gap here in Chicago. And for those who are not familiar, I'll talk us through this. So for years, life expectancy had been rising here in Chicago and around the country, decade after decade after decade. And for the first time in the mid-2010s, here in Chicago and around the country, we saw that trend broadly reverse. So you can see that throughout the two. 2010s, we dropped from a life expectancy of 77.8 to 77.2 years. It may not sound like that big a deal, 
But losing more than a half a year of life expectancy across the whole population is actually a very big deal. This is one of the most sensitive indicators for how healthy a community is. And let's take a look at the what's going on where we uh, break this out by race, ethnicity. So first of all, in 2012, remember that 77 years is the average uh, length of time that a Chicagoan lives. Asian Pacific Islanders in Chicago were living to age 85 and a half. Latinx Chicagoans to 83.1. White Chicagoans to 79.8. And Black Chicagoans much lower to 72.6 years. As the years marched forward, what we can see is that white life expectancy actually rose just a little bit to 80.2 years. But across all other race ethnicity groups, it dropped significantly. Particularly note that the Latinx um, uh, Chicagoans dropped from a life expectancy of 83.1 to 80 years. And for the first time, life expectancy fell below white Chicagoans. But look what happened to black non-Latinx Chicagoans, already starting with a life expectancy across the whole city of 72.6 years. We saw that drop to 71.4 years. This is preventable, it is unacceptable, and it is what the health department has set as our main goal for the next five years and something that we're calling Healthy Chicago 2025. The goal is to break down this racial life expectancy gap. I'll highlight that the gap between black and white Chicagoans is 8.8 years. And I want you to think for a second, what do you think is driving that? What do you think is different on the death certificates between white Chicagoans and black Chicagoans that makes that difference so significant? Number one, chronic disease. Number two, homicide. Number three, infant mortality. Number four, HIV and other infectious diseases. We put this together prior to COVID, but there it is. And number five, opioid overdoses. And when we look at the, how much this uh, actually plays out within that 8.8 year gap, what you see is that deaths related to chronic disease make up half of that gap. So what does that mean for COVID-19? Remember, 93% of the people who have died of COVID-19 in Chicago have a chronic underlying condition. Heart disease, lung disease, diabetes. These are the same chronic diseases that already were driving our life expectancy gap. But now let's take another step back and think about what is actually underlying that mortality gap. So we've already pointed out that we have this significant racial life expectancy gap, but what is underlying that? It's disease and injury. It's the five examples that I just gave that are our biggest problems here in Chicago if we wanna work on really addressing the racial life expectancy gap and inequities. The work of treating disease and injury, again, is predominantly the work of the healthcare system. But what drives disease and injury? One would say risk behaviors, potentially. So this is where we're thinking about things in more in the traditional public health prevention. Smoking, which makes up 
two years of that 4.4 year chronic disease gap, two years are due to differences in smoking related disease and death. We see poor nutrition. We see other um, things related to physical activity uh, and um, substance use, sexual behavior, et cetera. But what's un what underlies these risk behaviors? This is where we start really getting serious because we start talking about what living conditions are in place. And this is the work of government. This is also the work of nonprofits and businesses and everybody who has power and privilege and the ability to make decisions about where we invest as a city. And where we see differences across the city in physical environments, in social environments, in access to services, that drives the differences that we see in risk behaviors. What drives those differences in living conditions? Institutional inequities. And this is where we look at longstanding, historic and current laws, regulations, policies, and practices. Again, across many sectors of our society. And then what drives those institutional inequities? At the Chicago Department of Public Health, we think it's social inequities, starting with racism, but also discrimination based on class, immigration status, ability, gender, sexual orientation, and the list goes on. So if we want to address mortality and the life expectancy gap, we can't just stop at the diseases and injuries. We have to work on what underlies those. And so that's our plan for Healthy Chicago 2025. Many of you will have seen this map. You don't need to see it in detail, but it's highlighting that there is as much as a 17-year life expectancy gap between community areas in Chicago. And that's because Chicago is as racially segregated as it is. In Edison Park and Hyde Park, we have life expectancies 82.9 to 83.1 years. In Fuller Park, East Garfield Park, North Lawndale, we have life expectancies of 65.8 years, 67.7 years, etc. If we look again at what's underlying some of this, one example, again, we're not going to look at the details of this map. I just want you to look at the patterns, which is what epidemiologists do. Let's look at obesity. That's one of the uh, root causes that's been one of the things that we've seen associated with severe outcomes in COVID, both hospitalizations and deaths. And look at that map on the left and how well in darker blue we see areas with higher rates of adult obesity, how well that mapped onto the outcome. But what drives obesity? Look in the middle there. That is self that is self-reported perceived unsafe neighborhood. This is part of our Healthy Chicago survey, uh, where every year we ask adult Chicagoans um, many questions about their lives, their underlying health conditions, their concerns about their neighborhoods. And again, in darker blue, these are communities where people said, my community is broadly, I don't feel it's safe, it limits my ability to exercise or get out. And then on the right, that's food access. Again, look broadly at the patterns that we're seeing here. This is our percent in darker blue, higher uh, places with percentage of people with low income who live more than a half a mile from the nearest supermarket, super center, or large grocery store. And we know that they, in turn, report uh, the inability to buy um, uh, fresh food in some of these stores or to have the funding to be able to support it. 
And so where we take a look at understanding health inequities, let's bring this back around to COVID. I've already said that black Chicagoans, for example, are dying at a rate two and a half times as great as white Chicagoans. Some of that is about their access to healthcare. Are they getting into our fantastic healthcare systems and getting the care that they need? Do they have insurance? Are they getting disease, you know, their diseases and injuries appropriately treated? But underlying that is risk behaviors. And you've been hearing me say for months, wear a mask, stay home if you're sick, keep your distance. If someone at home may have been exposed to COVID, try to keep your distance at home, use a separate bathroom. But the ability of people to follow that advice absolutely depends on living conditions. And where we recognize, we mapped where in Chicago people who are essential workers live. They live in the same neighborhoods that are heavily Latinx and heavily African-American. Those same maps overlay where we have crowded housing conditions. And it's hard for people to be able to keep that separation within home. But then even underneath that, where we think about institutional inequities, when it was clear to me that we were going to need to take big steps at a societal level fast to get our outbreak under control, we knew that that was going to have a major economic impact on Chicago, and it has. The stat that kept popping into my mind was one from our Healthy Chicago survey again, which asked Chicagoans, if you had an unexpected $400 expense, could you cover that with cash or cash equivalent? Six out of 10 Chicagoans said they could not cover an unexpected $400 expense. And three quarters of both Black and Latinx Chicagoans said they could not cover an unexpected $400 expense. What does that say about the sorts of jobs, the sorts of access to education, uh, the varying underlying factors that have put people in poverty and also created such a wealth gap? I also think about the institutional inequities where we encourage people to stay home if they're sick. Our contact tracers who are reaching out every time there's a case of COVID, they regularly hear people say, I was feeling sick, maybe not that sick, but I had to go to work because I'd lose my job. I didn't have sick pay. I didn't have any other option. And again, let's look at our Chicago statistics. Four out of 10 Chicago parents report they do not have paid leave from their jobs. Almost half of both Black and Latinx working parents do not have paid leave from their job. It's much worse for women than it is for men. It's much worse for people who are working under the poverty line as opposed to over it. Only one in three working parents under the poverty line in Chicago has access to paid leave. So what option do you have? If you're not feeling well, you know you can't handle a $400 expense you can't necessarily stay home like we need you to, to control COVID. And then I think about the social inequities and frankly, the isms that have allowed those kinds of conditions to exist in Chicago, a city 
that is known around the world for its amazing wealth that does not extend to all communities. So Healthy Chicago 2025 is not just the health department's vision. We pulled together hundreds and hundreds of community partners and organizations, and together we built on what was part of our earlier Healthy Chicago movement going for about eight years. Uh, last round, we called out health equity specifically. This round, we're calling out racial inequities. And the vision for Healthy Chicago is simple. It's a city where all people and all communities have power, are free from oppression, and are strengthened by equitable access to resources, environments, and opportunities that promote optimal health and well-being. It's about working to dismantle structural and institutional racism. Easy to say, hard to do, but we have to be serious about it. It's about strengthening community capacity and youth leadership. It's about improving our systems of care, which we have seen in COVID need a lot of work. And it's about building healthy, vibrant neighborhoods. Because when we think about what public health looks like, it does look like this. It looks like the mobile sites that we have been standing up in a very targeted way here in Chicago. Again, working with the Race Equity Rapid Response Team. We look every single week at where our data is showing the potential for trouble with COVID. A zip code with a high case rate, a zip code with a high positivity rate. We work to say, let's get pop-up testing there. Let's work with the Boys and Girls Club, with the church, with the trusted museum, with the community organization. Make sure we are not missing COVID. This kind of hyper-local response is key. It's also about making PPE available, and we've done that in creative ways in Chicago, and it's about making data available. But public health also looks like this. And this is the work that has happened far beyond the Chicago Department of Public Health. This is just a taste of it. But it's city council approving $20 million fund to help renters have grace periods for residents facing eviction. It's about the amazing work of the recovery task force that is not just thinking about what we need to do in COVID this week or this month, but has put together a plan for the next four years to make sure we are thinking in a long-term way about coming out of this stronger. It's about emergency food coordination, and it's about making sure we're doing everything we can to support small businesses and nonprofits. So in summary, where I think about the lessons we need to take from COVID into the long term to address these longstanding and preventable inequities in Chicago, number one, we're going to use data. We're going to keep that phone call like I have with the mayor every day. We're going to talk about racial and ethnic differences, and we're going to do something about it. Number two, we're going to focus on long-term planning and preparedness in the same way that we make decisions about what is happening right now. Chicago Department of Public Health, I think, has done a very good job in terms of our emergency preparedness. We were virtually the only city to have any real amount of personal protective equipment stockpiled when this broke. And we've distributed more than 12 million units of PPE. We're planning now in a long-term way for what vaccination is going to look like. 
what equitable vaccination programs are going to look like, and how we're going to work together with our hospital and healthcare partners and the many industry partners who have been part of every stage of planning and response to date. Number three, we will be deploying resources where they are needed most, supporting communities to lead a hyper-local response. That is critical. If you do not have your eye on all parts of Chicago, any part can get out of control and we lose the whole game. And so the partnership that we're doing, we're working with the core foundation who in turn are hiring people from the community to support some of these pop-up and other testing sites. This is how you build trust. This is how you make sure we have testing available, especially in communities that may not have a lot of people who are insured, may have people who are worried about immigration status, want to know that they can get COVID testing from a trusted partner in a way that is not going to come back to be a problem for them, but instead is going to be part of our response. And as we think about what Chicago is planning to do for contact tracing, it's really different than anywhere else in the country that I'm aware of. Many places stood up a call center, worked with an academic institution. Here, we're partnering with the Chicago Cook Workforce Partnership. And in turn, there will be approximately 30 community-based organizations from the neighborhoods of high socioeconomic need in Chicago who in turn will hire people from those neighborhoods, train them to do the contact tracing, but also have an earn-as-you-learn program with the hope that these folks will take this initial job and turn it into the ability for longer-standing jobs that they can grow with. I'm imagining the potential of turning our contact tracing core into a 600-person-strong Healthy Chicago core. People in the communities, on the maps that we see on the south and west sides, who are going to do the work of public health, preventing disease, educating, making sure people are connected to resources and learning the lessons of COVID. We'll also be implementing the upstream policies um, that that have worked and been so important here, whether that's the amazing work that's happened related to housing access, to food, to unemployment. And finally, recognizing that as a city, we do share a common fate. We have to protect and sometimes sacrifice for one another. I don't know for sure when COVID is going to be over. I do know that we're planning for the next two to three years. That's how long we'll be responding. And I can't predict now what every bit of that will look like. But I do know that if we stick with these things that have gotten us this far with COVID and we take a long-term approach, we can get through this. So for you, if you are a business owner, a head of a foundation, a hospital, you're an executive director of a nonprofit, you're an employer, you manage resources, please think about what you're doing to help prevent the spread of COVID with the people who you work with, but also go deeper. Are there ways you could think about changing people's living conditions in Chicago? What do your organization's sick and family leave policies look like? Have you made specific commitments to development, to moving operations, or to hiring from the communities in Chicago where need is greatest? And then finally, ask yourself, why does it take a public health crisis like COVID-19 
to help us see these things as fundamental to everyday life. If this is who we aspire to be as a city all the time, what can you do, what can I do to change our policies, change our practices, so we all have a fair shot at living a long, healthy life full of opportunity? I invite you this September to join the Chicago Department of Public Health as we formally launch Healthy Chicago 2025. We will share with you then much more detail about our strategies for those five main drivers of the life expectancy gap. But more importantly, all the work we'll be doing on the root causes with partners. For now, as we look ahead, prepare for whatever lies ahead with COVID, I'm heartened that we are not just meeting the immediate challenge of eradicating the virus, though we need to do that. We're taking a public health approach in the broadest sense of the word. We're taking steps so our children will grow up in a city where your race or your zip code will not predict your life outcomes. If we carry the lessons of COVID forward, we will, I am sure, come out of this a more prosperous, resilient, equitable, and in every way, healthier Chicago. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Arwoody. Thank you very much for enlightening us on the city's plans on where we are right now with regard to the COVID. And I hope that you have time for some questions. We have numerous people who have submitted questions, a wide variety of areas. Um, this is from Bobby Husky with Husky and Associates. She wants to know if you would elaborate on the city of Chicago's policies on masks in common areas in residential buildings, such as elevators, hallways, lobbies, mail rooms, fitness rooms, and are there separate policies for public buildings and private buildings? So both the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois have a mask requirement for people over the age of two who are in public spaces. And that would include all of the above in that list. If you are in a setting where there is no one else there and you can keep a social distance, um, that would be the only situation uh, generally where masks are not required. But in a public space, it is the law, in fact, uh, at both the state and the city level uh, that masks are required. Thank you. Um, this is from... Dr. Bruce Handler, who's been a physician for over 40 years. Currently, he works with the Cook County Sheriff's Office. And he'd like you to talk about the psychology behind people who refuse to wear masks. Hmm. He wants to know, in your opinion, is it psychological? Is it physical? Is it political? Is it all of the above? None of the above. Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit all of the above. You know, I take questions directly from the public um, for Facebook Live multiple times a week. And masks have been a major topic of questions every single day I've been out there. Um, and there are some people who I think feel that they're not comfortable. I get questions about, you know, can I adjust my mask? Can I try something different? I always say the best mask is the one that you can actually wear and keep on your face. Um, but I actually think that here in the U.S., masks have become political in a lot of ways. 
not something that we have seen in other countries um, and not something I think we've seen as much in Chicago as in some other parts uh, of the country. But the fact, you know, we've had a mask order in place here in Illinois uh, for months at this point. Uh, Indiana just put one in yesterday. Wisconsin as a state still has not done so, uh, despite having an outbreak that is really not in very good control. And I think where we see some mixed messages from leaders, um, particularly political leaders, that can make people think that perhaps they're not necessary. I also think we've been honest about the way masks work. They're really important in terms of keeping your germs in. And the main reason that we moved to make the universal mask recommendation was once we learned what an important piece asymptomatic transmission was. And so when you wear your mask, you are providing some protection to yourself, but mostly you're protecting your neighbor. And when your neighbor wears the mask, they're protecting you. And not everybody is always willing to think about their neighbor first. But I think we're doing a good job broadly here in Chicago. Um, and usually with a little bit of convincing and trying different styles, uh, people get used to it. And it's just one of the easiest things that we can do. Um, there's good evidence behind it that it really helps. And it's uh, something that I um, absolutely um, uh, do myself whenever, whenever I can and uh, make sure that people around me are doing as well. Uh, along that line, the mask question. How often do you think masks should be changed or washed or if they're capable of that? Because some people seem to have a different mask for every occasion. Others seem to have the same mask all the time. Yeah, they've become a little bit of a fashion statement, which I love, actually, because I think people are more likely to wear them if they if they like them or they think they're having a good message. Um, you know, broadly, the, the recommendation is um, mainly around wearing it. The best practice would be really each day uh, when you when you finish wearing your mask, drop it in the washing machine or hand wash it, let it hand dry. If you, uh, you know, have a series of masks that you can wear throughout the week, that's probably the best. Um, I usually I'll drop mine sometimes in just a plastic bag uh, if, if I have it off, for example, when I'm in my office by myself. Um, but I think the more important thing, though, is that you're wearing it. And so if you have not been in, in very close contact with others, you haven't been touching a lot of things, there's probably not major germs on your mask. And so if you had a choice between wearing a mask a second day when it hadn't been washed or foregoing the mask because you're worried it could be contaminated, please wear the mask. Much more important in terms of wearing that mask and then, and then washing it, you know, at the end of that day. But if you can do it every day, uh, throw it in with your regular wash. That, that's probably the best practice. Thank you. Uh, this is a, a question from City Club member Chester Krapodlowski. Chester is a professional engineer, retired from the city of Chicago, by the way. And his question is, I'm a senior citizen with some health conditions that require me to exercise. Am I at risk if I use my indoor pool and equipment at my health club? And then he also says, I'm putting on weight. What suggestions do you have? Yeah, so um, the safest place to exercise is out of doors, especially during the summer where we have that as an opportunity. And so, you know, I really recommend to everybody as sort of a first step, um, especially if people are putting on weight and a lot of people have as, as routines have changed, even trying to get a walking routine in place where you can do that by yourself or just with someone who is already in your household um, out in your neighborhood. It's low impact. Um, it's very good for physical health. It's 
very good for mental health. In terms of the gym question, um, so we have definitely seen some evidence that, uh, especially if you're in a class setting or you're not keeping that social distancing at gyms, because there is a lot of um, activity and sort of stronger exhalation, it, it is considered a higher risk setting in general. It's why we've made masks a requirement uh, for indoor gyms in Chicago here as well. The pool itself is not a problem. COVID does not live in pool water, in lake water, in drinking water. Um, but the concern would be if you were having close interactions with someone else, um, a living, breathing person in a locker room or even in the pool itself, because you can't really have the mask on um, in, in water. And that's where there have been some different recommendations about around pool reopening. Um, but I'd say outdoors is best if you can do it. If you're going to go to the gym, wear the mask, keep the six foot distance. Um, and that's, that's, you know, the same guidance to everybody. Wash your hands before you're touching your nose and your mouth. Um, and just be careful. Thank you. Uh, our next question is from Creola Hampton, who is with Greater Works, Inc. And she wants to know about funding for black-led HIV AIDS organizations. And she feels that these organizations are not receiving enough of your department's budget. Sure. So um, the Chicago Department of Public Health receives a lot of direct funding um, from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, also from some other federal agencies related to housing um, and other developments, specifically for HIV. And a lot of that funding is very specifically earmarked for uh, given purposes. So for example, we have to find the clinical care for people with HIV. We have to make sure people who have HIV uh, get drugs paid for. We have to make sure that people who have HIV and have housing needs um, are having those housing needs met. And so a lot of the funding um, that we receive, it's to cover not just Chicago also, it's for the whole metropolitan statistical area, um, is really earmarked um, in ways that um, certainly we are are always wanting to fund um, uh, black-led or minority-led or women-led organizations, um, but but they it, it is quite limited in terms of what that can be used for. Um, and so we have to fund clinics, we have to fund hospitals, etc. We have worked quite hard, um, and I if, if people are interested, I would refer you to our Getting to Zero plan. Um, you can Google it, you'll find it, uh, which is a, a, an effort with the Illinois Department of Public Health and many HIV experts experts, providers, community members um, around the state and across Chicago uh, to work on actually getting to zero um, and specifically with a focus um, on communities of color because as you saw, um, HIV and other infectious diseases are one of the drivers of that um, black life expectancy gap. So we um, absolutely are uh, always interested and in looking to fund um, organizations that put in competitive grants. We have to obviously follow the city's um, procurement and competitive grant processes. And actually, one thing um, that I think has been really, really good that the department has done is invested in some of these smaller community-based organizations, many of which um, are led by people of color, to help build capacity and make them more competitive, uh, have some more of the financial um, backbone, the grant writing experience to be able to be more successful for grant applications. So um, certainly it's something um, we are all committed to working on this. Um, and uh, I encourage you to go to Getting to Zero if you want to learn more and there's opportunities to um, uh, make your voice heard there. So thank you. Thank you. 
Uh, we have a couple of questions here about uh, vaccines. Uh, this is from Edward Cooper. Do you think there will be different vaccines for different age groups? Yeah, interesting question. Um, I think it is likely that we will see more than one vaccine candidate uh, sort of cross the finish line here. There are many, many that are under development, um, and there are a number now that are moving into that phase three trial, which is the point at which we learn whether a vaccine really works in the real world. Um, and I don't think we will probably, at least initially, have a vaccine that's specifically developed for, say, a younger group or an older group. What we'll learn in these phase three trials, though, is whether some vaccine candidates may be more effective in a group that's older or a group that's younger or, you know, any other potential difference. And so um, I do think that when vaccine becomes available, and I do think we will have one. Uh, my best guess would be that it'll probably be early next year, and we will be spending the next calendar year, all of 2021 at least, I'm sure, working on what the rollout of that vaccine looks like, how you actually move from the concept of a vaccine that works, getting it into um, people's arms, particularly if we need a multi-dose regimen. So if we look at some other vaccines, um, over time, we've often seen, like for example, the influenza vaccine, uh, there have been some some types that are developed that work a little bit better for older people. Probably over time, um, we may learn that some of them work better. If there are people who are interested in being part of vaccine trials, I would love Chicagoans to sign up. Um, University of Illinois at Chicago uh, is is in the first uh, has one of the first vaccine trials going, but some of our other academic centers will be parts of vaccine trials um, in the months to come. And we absolutely want people from across Chicago. We want Want people of different ages, different race, ethnicities coming, uh, you know, working in um, the types of jobs that have been higher risk for COVID, because that's how we will learn um, whether this vaccine is is effective in the real world. Um, absolutely, all the work is being done to ensure that this vaccine is safe that it will go through all of the regular both safety and efficacy testing um, that it normally would. I sometimes get the question of how are you speeding up the, the vaccine? And some of that is because we're starting, and we, I mean the government, the federal government, is starting to actually produce vaccine while these large-scale trials are still going on. If the vaccine turns out to be successful, you save months or even years in terms of production. If it wasn't successful, you have to sort of waste all that production. But in terms of um, the impact we think it will have on the economy, et cetera, uh, saving some time in production is important. So lots more to come on vaccine. We'll be learning much more in the months to come. I think the early um, news does look promising, and I am feeling uh, quite good that, that we will have um, a vaccine. Very good. And this is from City Club member Jim Terman. He wants to know if you could explain the term herd immunity and how what we should know about that term. Yeah, absolutely. So herd immunity is this concept where enough of a population has immunity to a virus that you 
decrease the risk of having significant spread within that population, even if not everyone has been exposed. So we usually get to herd immunity uh, through vaccination. So if you think about um, something like a measles vaccine, where you know more than 93, 94% of our children in, in Chicago uh, do get their measles vaccines like they should, um, that is generally high enough that even if there are some individuals who may not get a measles vaccine, you're not likely to see significant spread throughout the community. We broadly think with COVID that we would need about 60 to maybe 70% of the population to have immunity to COVID. And so I've sometimes heard people say, you know, I should just get COVID and get it over with, then I'll have immunity, then we'll get to herd immunity. That is not a good approach for an individual or at a public health level. Um, all of the antibody studies that, w- that have been being done around um, the country and around the world have found that even in places that have been hit very hard by COVID, we are a very, very long way from herd immunity. And I don't want people thinking that trying to get a natural infection will somehow help our public health response. Um, it's risky and we don't know for sure how long immunity will last, for example, um, even if you, you do uh, get some antibodies uh, after, after having COVID. So it's something that gets talked about a lot. It's an ultimate goal state, um, but I don't see us getting to a point here in Chicago, here in the U.S. or around the world of herd immunity um, until we have a vaccine available and really quite widely uh, deployed. Thank you. We have time for just two questions. Number one, this is from Karen Kane with Karen Kane Consulting. What do you think of administering the Sabin polio vaccine to stimulate immunity to COVID-19? Something I'm not familiar with, but maybe you are. Yeah, there's a lot of trials that are going on um, looking at all sorts of different approaches to boost immunity and think about how that may interact. Um, you know, we have never, ever had the explosion of scientific research being done on one topic around the world. Uh, researchers everywhere have shifted from whatever their original area of study was to really work on COVID. It's been amazing to follow. Um, the one that I'm actually a little more interested in, more than the, the polio, Um, is some work that's being done in Australia um, and some in Africa as well that's actually looking at the tuberculosis vaccine. It's called the BCG vaccine, um, and it's given very commonly in parts of the world where there's still a lot of tuberculosis. We don't give it here in the U.S. We don't have major tuberculosis problems here. Um, And there's some interesting work that's trying to see uh, can that BCG vaccine perhaps um, help uh, in some way with immunity or or have, um, uh, you know, help in terms of COVID. But what I want to say on all of these is that the jury is still out. We do not have um, any solid evidence at this point um, that any of these uh, immune modulators in terms of uh, vaccines um, or adjuvant uh, vaccines have been proven to be helpful yet. So um, I'm glad someone's following the science there and keep, you know, keep watching. Um, Everybody around the world is looking uh, still to see what is going to be the most effective here. Um, And if we learn that there are ways to pair a vaccine with existing vaccines or existing um, treatments, uh, absolutely that will be part of our plan, but only when something has been proven safe and effective. Thank you. Well, the jury may be out on some of those issues, but our jury has voted a big thank you for you taking time from your busy schedule to speak with members of the City Club and the general public today. And we'd like to present you with a one-year complimentary membership in the City Club 
of Chicago, ask you to come back as your schedule allows. And I want to remind everybody that this is a free program. You must pre-register, and any donations to the City Club of Chicago will be greatly appreciated. Once again, thank you, Dr. Arwadi. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me.